welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode from Ask a Painter Live with Nick Slavy. In this episode, Nick is invited as a guest on True Tales from Old Houses, hosted by Stacy Grinsfelder, and they discuss how they would handle the renovation of their old houses if money were no object. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. And thank you for all of your Get Well Soon messages. I mentioned last episode that we've all had COVID. Uh, Well, we're mostly recovered now with a few lingering symptoms here and there, most of those related to exercise, if truth be told. My voice is still a bit of a mess, which is not great for podcasting, but everything does keep getting better. I guess it's just going to take some time. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been doing some demo in the guest bath, and there are a couple posts about that over on the Blake Hill House blog. The short of it is that that bathroom is a mess. I uncovered quite a bit of poor workmanship, which would have never held up over time. At this point, I'm basically down to the new subfloor, and honestly, that might have to go too. This has all been such an ordeal. Anyway, the next step is getting the room ready for tiles. So if you would like to see how this whole debacle unfolds into something hopefully wonderful, at this point, I would settle for a bathroom that's waterproof and functional. You can follow along at BlakeHillHouse.com. Today's show is a good one. Alex and I are revisiting a topic that I've talked about on the show before with a different friend. And Nick Slavic is here. If you weren't familiar with Nick, you are in for a treat. He has over 30 years of experience as a painter, and his business model turns everything that I've ever known about working in the trades upside down. He also agreed to answer some of your questions about painting. Now, I know we've had several painters on the show over the years, but every one of them has brought something new to the table, and Nick does too. All of that is coming up after a couple of announcements. First, after a lot of consideration, Steve Quillian from Wood Window Makeover has decided to cancel the Historic Homes Workshop in Largo, Florida. That was supposed to run in May. It seems like a lot of people, I guess, are still really hesitant to travel right now, and there were a few other factors that led to his decision. So we will not be gathering for that workshop after all. I don't think I say this nearly as often as I should, but thank you for listening to this podcast, for all of your input and feedback, your direct messages, emails, the positive ratings and reviews. I am truly grateful that you're willing to spend your precious time listening to true tales from old houses. This show is for you. So let's get to it. For today's Q&A, you know him, you love him. Alex from Old Town Home is back. I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for having me again, Stacey. How did you like that intro? It was great. I liked it. (laughs) I was going for a late night talk show vibe, so (laughs) I may need to work on that. I feel very welcome. Oh, good, good, good. All right. Well, I know for a fact that we've answered this question before. Not you and I, Alex, but I've been asked this question and we answered it here on the show. But... You and I have had a little pre-show chat, and you mentioned that your perspective on the topic has changed over the years, and I think mine has too. 
So it seemed worth it to revisit the question with a fresh take. All right, let's go for it. All right. The question is, if time or money weren't an issue, would you choose to whole house reno all at once? Or would you continue to live in your home and take your time renovating as you went along? Take it away. Well, like, like you said, my, my perspective on this has changed substantially since we bought our house. Early on in the process, I always thought, oh, it would be great if you could just get in and renovate the whole house before you live in it. Once you move into your house and you start living in it for a while, you realize the benefit of waiting, learning how you use the house, and then doing the renovation. But there was always that idea of we're doing one room at a time because that's how how we can afford it, essentially. And if money were no object, would we just move out after knowing how we want the house and renovate the whole house? I think early on in the process, that was always the thought was, oh, it'd be great if you could just you know, work on things, even if I could leave my job for a little while and just work on the whole house for a year or something like that, doing it myself. Oh, oh, what a luxury that would be. Would that be the way that you want to do it? I think for a long time, I thought that was how I would want to approach it. But now I think, at least for me, it's much better to approach a renovation as components and looking at how to do things as individual incremental steps to ultimately get to where you want to go. And it may be due to the fact that, and I work in IT, I'm a software developer, and a lot of what we've been doing over the last many, many years for any IT people that are listening is using agile software development. And you get a lot better product with agile software development because you iterate through the changes, incrementally making improvements to the software until you get it to the state that you want it to be in. Applying that same principle to a home renovation, you can do the same thing, where the first step might be getting your whole um, utilities structure in shape, making sure everything is good, so that then you can move into those incremental steps. Hmm, Interesting. I think I can see that. Maybe we're somewhat similar in that because I was going to say we chose to rehab as we went along really based on our budget. That's how we started. We have four kids and that's a lot of mouths to feed, education to plan for. Uh, We also enjoy travel, luxuries here and there, a few luxuries, not crazy luxuries here and there. So we chose to buy this house with a longer mortgage for lower house payments and not take out a second construction or rehab loan or anything like that. And that's always really a personal decision based on like cash in your pocket, short-term, long-term income, potential, stage of life, whatever. There is a lot to consider. And of course, this is not a financial podcast, but we did choose that lower monthly payment to give our kids and ourselves a little bit higher quality of life based on our personal values. So I'm getting to you. I'm getting to how this relates to you. Mm-hmm. I am long round roundabout. I shall get there. But <laughs> we were always cash in hand people when it came to these house projects. But in September, we closed on a cash out refi, which means that I now have a chunk of money in an account and I can just afford to hire some things out, uh, some things that have been on our list, like roofing, uh, light construction, that kind of thing. And I also have a chunk set aside if we need to replace our heating or or something big that was always just like, oh, I hope that really doesn't happen. Like we'll figure it out. The catastrophic unexpected. Right. So now that I can afford to hire people, I, I 
And I actually have, you know, it hasn't always worked out, but I did hire like some paint, somebody, some painters to come in and do the, the entry. And just having them do all of that painting pushed me past my point of, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm about to knock that whole thing out hundred percent, just having that help. So getting to your point of incremental change, I could see how nice it would be to pay someone to do a lot of it, like the 80% maybe, and then leaving the 20% for myself or even having some things done in quotes, knowing full well that I might make other upgrades and changes over the course of the time that I'm here rather than having a completely unfinished. I mean, that because that does kind of wear down on you after a while seeing life in a construction zone. Yes, definitely. Especially if you can't just shut a door and ignore it. If it's in an area that's a common area, um, walking into hallways, having a kitchen disruption, something along those lines. And I think one of the big things that we've realized that we do is, you know, the idea of live in your house before you know how you want your house to be laid out is a good one and one that we tell everyone who is asking for any opinion on that sort of a thing. And I wholeheartedly agree. Absolutely. No disputing that. I could never just buy a house, hire the contractor and then move in four right. months later. I mean, right. I just, oh, that control yeah. seeker. <laughs> yeah. And, and not to mention the fact that, you know, then you're also potentially realizing things you should have done after the fact, and then potentially starting over on things if you really feel um, passionate about it needing to be a certain way. But taking this the next step, not only living in the place in the space before you figure out what you want to do, but after you, and we do renovations that are, we, we essentially go room by room. Once the envelope is in good shape, utilities are good, then you go room by room. Going room by room you have to do almost the exact same thing. Once you finish a room, it's good to see how you use that space and how that space interacts with the spaces around it that you've yet to do. Because that will inform how you would do your next project that maybe touches that project. And that's just an extension of live in a space before you do a renovation. If you do a renovation, live in that finished space before you do the next step. It definitely makes the overall project take a lot longer. And you can be hiring people out because this can be a money is no object scenario, but still one room informs how you do the next. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess in favor of tackling more of it, I've kind of come to realize that there are things that I don't enjoy doing at all. And I, I I hate to admit that, but also as I get older, there are some things that I'm maybe not as capable of anymore. Um, another thing that I despise admitting, but also, you know, how I want to spend my time changes. So right. that's kind of that in favor of, of hiring out when you can, but then it comes down to, I mean, I'm sort of similar to you in that I know things are going to change. So there's, it's never like, oh, I'm done. Here's this thing that I'm done with. And, you know, I'm different than, and you and I are both different. You know, we see this a lot on Instagram. Somebody's had four couches in five years. I mean, that is not, that's right. not what we're talking <laughs> yeah. about here. No, no, no. No, but things do change. You know, you think, oh, this would be nice here, or maybe we don't like yellow anymore. Um, I'm looking at the room behind me, and maybe I want to paint it a different color. So those kind of things, I think, are normal changes. But and also, you know, in this whole process too, you're a caretaker, and that's something with old houses that I think is lost in the conversation too often is you are a caretaker for this old house. We, we romanticize this and 
potentially over romanticize it and in, in, in caring for the old houses that we do. But we are caretakers and we are getting it ready for the next person who will hopefully take what we've done to the next step and appreciate the effort that we've put into it and continue that caretaking. Thank you so much, Alex, for answering this question again. Um, I knew yeah. it'd be fun to get a different perspective on it, even though we've answered it or we've asked and answered. It's been asked and we've answered it before. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I enjoy this qu- this type of question, especially because you know there are so many touchy-feely things about old houses that get lost in the background when we're talking about you know big renovations, how to restore things, how to how to handle everything. These are important things that are good to think about every now and again. I agree. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you later. If you have an old house or DIY question that you would like for me and a guest to answer on an upcoming episode, please contact the show via the True Tales from Old Houses website or send me a direct message on Facebook or Instagram. Now it's your turn to answer a question. I want to know what have you learned since buying your old house? Here are a couple of answers from Instagram. This first one is kind of sad, but I also respect the self-awareness. Dalton wrote, We discovered that we were too old and arthritic to manage 3,400 square feet on three acres. It takes a lot to admit that. I feel like a lot of us might be in the same place, but we're just not willing to say it or admit it yet. And this next one comes from my buddy, John, who is also a window restoration professional. He has learned that he will never have time to work on his own house. You know, it's that old adage. You've heard it before. The cobbler's children have no shoes. Imagine working on someone else's old house all day and then coming home and trying to muster up the excitement to work a second shift on your own. I think that would be very difficult. These answers are always so interesting and thought-provoking. And if you would like to share one of your own, go ahead and send me a direct message through social media or head on over to truetalesfromoldhouses.com and let me know via the contact form or click on the mic icon in the bottom right-hand corner to leave a voicemail using your phone or computer. Once again, this season's question is, what have you learned since buying your old house? Let's take a pause because I want to thank our sponsors. True Tales from Old Houses continues because of their generous support. So thank you to The Window Course from Scott Seidler of the Craftsman blog, Abitron, and for this episode, Limeworks US. The Window Course is a step-by-step do-it-yourself program that will teach you everything you need to know to successfully restore your wood windows. I see you on Instagram and Facebook ready to learn how to restore windows, and you're willing to work hard as educated stewards of your old house. I admire that. Now is an excellent time to take the window course and make the most of the next six to eight months. The window course is yours to keep. So if you are restoring a window and you get stuck, you can go back and review as many times as necessary. No more digging through YouTube trying to figure out which resources are the real deal. The window course is self-paced and you can go as fast or as slow as you need to. There are also several price points to fit your needs and budget. If you sign up for the lifetime access package or training package, then you'll also get a free infrared paint remover, which is a $130 value. The window course is offered with a money-back guarantee, and I've got a coupon code to share. Scott is offering True Tales from Old Houses listeners a special discount. For 10% off, visit thewindowcourse.com and use the coupon code TRUETALES. True Tales from Old Houses is also supported by Abitron. Abitron manufactures two of my very favorite wood repair products, liquid wood and wood epox. 
Over the years, I've talked about both a bunch on Instagram and my blog, and I just bought a fresh batch. So bring on the warm weather. I am ready to tackle some wood rot. Wood epochs and liquid wood make permanent cost-effective repairs wherever you find rotted or damaged wood. And whether you're a first-timer or a professional tradesperson, Abitron products are super easy to use. The instructions are simple. The results are exceptional. No shrinking or sagging, and repairs can be sanded and painted just like wood. Follow Abitron on Facebook and Instagram. You'll find them at Abitron Inc. as in Incorporated. To purchase liquid wood and wood epox, visit abitron.com. Use the coupon code TRUETALES10, that's the number 10, to save 10% on your order. Does your masonry or stonework need a little attention, or maybe a lot of attention? Head on over to lineworks.us. Lineworks US offers products for masonry and plaster repair, as well as education to preserve the legacy of historic structures from cathedrals to cottages, all while maintaining a commitment to reducing the carbon footprint for everyone. A couple of years ago, my buddy John Rogers, he's been on the podcast several times, he directed me to Lineworks to purchase mortar to repoint my stone foundation here at Blake Hill House. I use their online tool to figure out which lime mortar I should buy. It's all very scientific based on your climate, interior, exterior use, how hard or soft your stone or brick is. They have this website tool. You plug all that data in and it serves up personalized recommendations. Then if you still don't know what you need, you can contact customer service and they'll help you figure it out. Rest assured that all of Limeworks products are compatible with old buildings and buying from Limeworks supports their worthy goal of creating more American jobs and investing in an eco-friendly, energy-efficient, and sustainable future. Visit Limeworks.us to learn more about their products and services for your next historic restoration project. My guest today is Nick Slavic, longtime painter, business innovator, and one of the most energetic and passionate guests I've ever met. I am Nick Slavic. I am the proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. I'm also the host of an online social media show called Ask a Painter Live. It's a weekly live Facebook show where I used my 30 uh, years as a master craftsperson to answer any questions about running a trades business or the science of coding. Well, it is such a pleasure to have you here today, Nick. Thank you. Well, thanks for the opportunity. A chance to talk to somebody like you with interests like this is a big thing for me. So thank you. We're going to have a lot in common, I think, once we get going <laughs> here. <laughs> well, you're so passionate, driven, and energetic. And so my first question is really, what do you eat for breakfast? Because I want some of that. Ah, uh, yes. So this is interesting. I am known for not eating anything breakfast-like. Uh, I am a utilitarian, so I eat a lot of just like leftovers, uh, and it has to do with a lot of vegetables, uh, potatoes, and meat, and things like that. So I'm not one of the you know muffins for breakfast and things like that. I just eat food, and I like food that is technically free and leftover in my fridge. So. <laughs> I'm super thankful you didn't say it was vats of coffee because I don't get to drink as much coffee as I like anymore. And it's very disappointing to me. <laughs> ah, there is coffee, but not like that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But in all seriousness, too, how did you become a professional painter? Yeah. So actually, my father owned a painting company and forced me into indentured servitude when I was 10 years old. So it was not my choice. It was, you know, as most family trades businesses go, uh, evenings, weekends, summer, holidays, I was just forced into service for the family business. So between 10 and 18, 
Um, I did not like it very much, to be honest. Like when you're forced to do something, you think about it differently than when you choose to do it. But later on in life, I gained a deep appreciation. But I was also one of those nerds when I was between eight and 15. I was restoring Victorian furniture in my garage. Like that, that weird nerdy kid doing that. I was so intrigued by wood and the restoration of wood. It, it, that does still fuel me today. What did you think you were going to do instead of become a painter? Honestly, I didn't have a second plan, which might account for some of the success I'm experiencing right now because there's no parachute in this. It, it's this or nothing. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, one of the things I like about you, I've been watching your videos, reading some of your articles. I love how you keep things simple. And I wanted to say that recently, I've really been trying to drive home the idea of there being more than one right way to reach the same outcome because there's nothing worse than putting yourself out there and somebody saying, you're doing it wrong. You and I both know there's more than one way. Uh, I've talked about it here on the podcast, written about it on the blog. And when push comes to shove, simple always wins in my book. So how did you reach this same conclusion? Yeah. So I reached this in a very painful way by martyring myself for <laughs> historic things and the love of old houses and the craft and coding science. And so I did do this in a very sort of negative, non-productive way. And I realized that if I do actually want to restore old houses and see them through, it felt like there were two kinds of people in my industry, which is people like the starving artist types, which start something, never finish it. And then you're worse off than when you started. Or there's people who say, you know what, maybe 92% out of 100 is good, but then that allows me to comply with it and compete, uh, complete it and keep moving forward. So I actually had to learn that over a few decades of, listen, perfection stands in the way of really good. And it does over and over and over again. And uh, it's just a deep lesson that I put my family and myself through a lot of pain uh, for the love of old houses and not anymore. So, mm -hmm. Right. So you feel like really good is better than perfection. Is that what I understood? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, uh, I, I have this thought experiment in my restoration company all the time, which is, listen, if you really want to restore your house, you're going to need to give us three to four months. We're going to strip every inch of wood off your house. We're going to do restoration carpentry. We're going to solidify the wood and do somewhere between a four and eight coat coating process. And guess what? Nobody lets us do that because that is so expensive. So we had to adapt ways, uh, a way that we call reasonable restoration where we do a, a super thorough thing, but we realize there's a limit to what people are going to pay us to do. So we either have to understand that so we can touch these old houses, or we can stand there and be martyrs and purists and say, well, there's only one way to do this. And then we'd never get a chance to practice our love for old houses. So we've become realists in that realm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I once had a painter when I lived in California. He was great. I hired him for several things. He always had three bids. He was like the good, better, best bid. He was like, what do you want? No matter what, you're still going to love what we do. But yeah. here's the difference between the good, better, best. And I always loved hiring him because, you know, we could really negotiate and talk about what that meant. That's a very sophisticated craftsperson then, because most people, especially when you're dealing with the subjective nature of restoration projects and coding stuff, there's not always, it's not like models of a car where there's a clear delineation between, you know, advantages and price. It gets into a weird subjective realm. So hats off to that craftsperson for actually being able to uh, explain the, the different value propositions. What's one thing that you would just never compromise on? 
Yeah. So two, two major things we focus on uh, in, in, and I'll use the company as an, as an example, which is uh, client service, because we can, we can restore your old house in a beautiful, beautiful way. But if we put out cigarette butts on your front step, that ruins the entire experience and you'll think about us less. So, you know, outside of painting, you have to realize it's not just a paint job. It's not just a restoration. It's that. And also we actually have, um, for my 30 years, we have standard operating procedures, SOPs that we do not balk on. Like if a, we have a list of things that we will not accept. And if a client says, well, listen, here, I'm going to buy the paint and you can skip the primer. And you know what? I want you to pressure wash my old house. And we will say, note all those things. We respect that. You can probably find somebody to do it. One of those three is illegal. We absolutely can't do that. But these are the things that we're going to do to your house because at the end of it, we can promise you a result. If we deviate from that, the likeliness of your happiness and a good result goes down with each one of those. So we would rather not have the opportunity uh, than to do it compromised. That's so honorable. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's been, and these are not things that we're standing and we're going to die on this hill for some subjective reason. In 30 years, I've tried it all. I, there is nothing that a potential client or another craftsperson from around this country can present me that I either haven't done myself or have a solution for, or have a data set on what works and doesn't. So these are things that I just know to be true. And I can either give you something I can prove or not. And, and, in business, you cannot dwell in that subjective realm. <laughs> right, right. I'm understanding a lot more about you just by talking to you for a few minutes, but what would you say sets Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company apart? What were you trying to do that was different when you started your company? Yeah. God, man, these are good questions. Um, so uh, number one, I was raised in a very regressive uh, version of the trades where old grumpy people would just yell at you all the time. <laughs> and for better, or for worse, I stuck around and I'm glad I did. But I was raised in an era where you had two choices. You could either be a master craftsperson and be good and martyr yourself and never make any money, but clients would be weeping with joy and give you baked goods and everything else. Or you can have a big business, make a lot of money, but you don't really do any good work. You make unhappy clients and you know, you go through life like that as the marauding business. Our thesis of what we're doing is we believe you can do both. And especially in trades 2.0, the new trades uh, with a with new apprentice, uh, new apprenticeship and things like that. Uh, we are sort of proving it. We're, we're kind of uh, not fully completed yet, but uh, this is a new version of what people are doing. And I believe that you can have a robust large business with lots of people power and systems that run on not just the individual, but you can also do tons of work. You can make good money so that you can pay your craftspeople better, actually have some health insurance and a retirement and paid time off and all these wonderful things that real businesses do, which allows you to help more people in more old houses. So for me, it's kind of like that Ouroboros thing, the snake eating the tail, which is one feeds another. And it's a, it's kind of like a flywheel. This may be the same answer, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway. What myths about painting or the trades in general would you like to bust? Yeah, like you said, it's way simpler than you think. Uh, people think that there's all sorts of these magic formulas and things like that. And especially in the old house world, my gosh, are there some, there's some mysticism about what to do and what not to do. And I can tell you that insanely well-performed, unsexy, mundane, boring tasks over and over consistently will get you a much better result than some secret formula you found in a coatings book from 1880s or something like that. And there's there's just a whole bunch of those things out there that I've seen fail in horrible ways. But then when we do our big restorations, we get wonderful results using very simple, straightforward systems. Well, going back, I thought the answer to that question might be a little bit related to your business model. 
we've actually crossed a great line of professionalism in, in, in the last year or so. Uh, we employ about 40 people. We have a leadership team. We have project managers. We have estimators. We have office staff. Uh, we have trainers, shop managers, uh, and there's a whole pile of apprentices and craftspeople out there where, you know, it, once they make it through our apprenticeship program, uh, it's about a one-year formal process where we even have a training facility we train them in. And at the end of that, they they get blessed into new uniforms, health insurance, retirement, paid time off. We even work a four-day work week. So um, there's there's a whole bunch of ways of doing this. And I just don't think we're thinking progressively enough about what the trades could be. Because honestly, there's there's businesses. Well, my father is still in business. I left my own family business because it wasn't progressive enough for me. And my father operates technically on paper the same as me, except that we have that. And, you know, he he runs a very different version of a painting business, which is more akin to like what was done 40 years ago, which isn't good or bad. It's just two drastic things operating in the same space. We might have to have a part two or something because it's very interesting. No, and, and and again, I'll apologize. I don't mean to keep talking about the business, but my life is this, or my calling is this, and I want to touch a lot of old houses. And I realized in my 20s, I'm only going to be able to restore so many Victorian mansions. I'm hitting my physical peak as I speak, and my production only goes downhill. So if I want to practice this love of old houses, we need more people. And, and inculcating those young people with those love of old houses I get so much energy and joy out of that because you just see them physically change when they get to work on these old mansions and things like that. Mm -hmm. How do you find people to work for you? Uh, we actually operate on something which is not new to the rest of the world, but is new to the trades, which is the decent human being theory, where we only find decent human beings and we train the living daylights out of them. So we have a set of core values in the company. We have a very strict um, hiring recruiting process. And honestly, I think 80... 80% of our people that we employ have never even considered the trades before and are now operating in a trade space at a very high level. So we are big fans of good people. Anybody can paint, but you need to be a good person first. And that's how we operate. I am happy to talk about the business because I, I want people to get to know you because we're, I'm going to do a bunch of questions for you and oh, you're yeah. going to answer them. And I want people to know this guy knows what he's talking about. So I think we we're ready. Would you like to do some questions, some Q&A with me? Oh, listen, you're talking to the Ask a Painter guy. This is my lifeblood. There's nothing better I like than off-the-cuff Q&A. So I love this. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, I have compiled a list of questions from my followers on Instagram. We may not have time for all of them, but you are a pretty fast talker. So maybe we will. <laughs> I'm also long-winded and I'll try to control myself. So <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, should I give you some parameters? We can, only, <laughs> we can only go so far here, but let's start with prep. And the first question is, what is your favorite prep for fresh plaster before painting? Oil primer. Okay. Wow. That was quick. Two words. I, I'm trying to control myself. I have so many thoughts, but yes, oil primer. It's an, it's a super old timey craft person method, tried and true people out in Boston, a craft people, friend of mine who still put up new plaster, still use oil primer with great effect. Okay. Great. This person says, I have plaster walls with latex paint, but I want to use lime paint. What do I do? Yeah. So there's lots of different lime paints. I'm assuming lime paint that in, in my realm, there's two kinds of lime paint, which is just a paint that happens to be lime based or it's a decorative finish. Either way, I would make sure that there's a stable base. So whatever lime paint you're going to do, do a small section somewhere. And number one, you want to look for adhesion. And number two, you want to look for any chemical um, disparities between the two lime paint is more like a masonry thing. So the pH is going to be different than regular paint, do a section, see if you can scratch it off, 
If you can't scratch it off, you're good to go paint right over the top of it. But if it's a decorative finish, we're kind of entering into a whole nother thing. You may have to lay down a color-based coat or something else. Mm -hmm. And when you say color-based coat, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So sometimes uh, I was a decorative finisher in a past life. It's one thing that I've had to lessen up on. So we've done lime washes, color washes, all this other stuff. And if you are to do that, most decorative finishes are translucent and you need to lay down some colored base coat first to then do a wash over the top of it. So if that's the kind of lime paint, uh, I'm familiar with a lot of lime washes. That's what you'd have to do. You have to actually build color over multiple coats. Yeah. Lime wash, I think has gained a lot of popularity on Instagram fairly recently. So if I had to guess, I think we're talking about lime wash. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm going to say a brand. Usually I don't because, but it's the only one I know, like Portola, I think is one of the brands. Absolutely. So it's something that we don't traffic a lot in, but uh, most of, most of our interaction nowadays, 20 years ago, it was a decorative finish, a lime paint, a lime wash on just walls. Now people are taking the brick fireplace and and lime washing or German smudging or German smearing or any number of things. So it's always best to just do a sample in an area. And number one for aesthetics, number two for adhesion. That's kind of the the, the bellwether of what we do as a professional uh, coatings person. All right. So scraping is the true test, not just like waiting for a month to see what happens or... Yeah, there is a magical thing that we call a scratch test. We actually have a standard operating procedure. So a lot of the questions that have to do with painting can come back down to a scratch test, which is properly prepare the surface. Don't do anything different. Uh, for a piece of wood trim in our company, we we paint tons of wood trim in newer houses. And what we do is we do a process called SVT. We sand it, we vacuum off the dust, and then we use a microfiber tack rag to get it clean. We put some primer on in a small section. You wait overnight. And if you can't scratch it off in the morning, you are 100% good to go. If you can scratch it off, you got to try another coating. All right. Good to know. All right. The next question, do you have to scrape off all the alligator paint before painting? And I wrote a little note here because some people, you know, they've written questions to me and I'm kind of having to read between the lines a little bit. I suspect maybe it's either completely dried out oil paint, you know, chalky surface, or if it's interior, it could be like cracked latex over shellac or something like that. It's just a guess. Yep. So, um, I'm kind of going to do like the economist answer, which it it depends, right? Like there's, to me, there is the um, properly painted surface question of this. And then there's the aesthetics version of this. So um, that I have a door in my office right now that was salvaged from a hundred year old uh, schoolhouse. And it had that deep, deep alligatoring to the point where it was almost, you know, about an eighth inch thick. And you can paint right over it if that's intact, if it doesn't scrape off. But if it does scrape off, you do need to get that off first because that'll cause adhesion problems. But if you don't mind the aesthetic of that crackled alligatored paint and it's intact, you can paint right over that or prime and paint right over it. But if you do not like the aesthetics of the alligator or the crackled paint, you do need to remove it. And then it's just time to strip it down to bare surface and start over. You were very efficient with these questions. Thank you. <laughs> Man, I could go on for hours about this stuff. It's just, I could give every possible iteration I've ever done, but honestly, that's the, yeah, I'd try to simplify it in my head. <laughs> right. No, we appreciate that. Sometimes it just at least gives somebody a start. They think, oh, I heard this, and then that gets them going on a path that is the right way for them. That's it. So how do you know if the exterior of a house can be painted again? This is a 100-year-old house, and again, this is my note. I assume the question is related to how many layers are too many layers, or maybe even if the wood sat bare for a really long time, uh, you know, was exposed to weather and for too long. So 
this is, this is almost the exact conversation I have with my historic restoration clients. When we're on site, they want to guarantee that you're going to take care of their house, not take advantage of them and provide them with a beautiful, long lasting finish. And nearly the exact words I say are your house has been around for, could be 140 or 150 years. All right. It's gone through milk paint. It's gone through calcimime. It's gone through the early versions of oil, likely lead, the early versions of latex. It's likely that there are people that have committed great sins to your house over the years by either pressure washing it, spraying it on unprepped stuff. So what we do is we talk about reasonable restoration, which is yes, the answer is always yes, your house can be painted, but you must have reasonable expectations for it. And that's where we go back along the lines of the two questions. As a business owner, one of the biggest um, pitfalls that we can enter into is not setting proper expectations. And for a DIYer or a homeowner, you need to set proper expectations with yourself. If you want a longest lasting finish somewhere between 10 and 20 years, we are going to need to strip your house down to bare wood and start over, which includes restoration carpentry, solidifying the wood, priming sometimes multiple times, and then applying you know newer acrylic uh, polymers to it. Most people, again, will not pay for that. So we practice reasonable restoration, which is we are going to spend about 600 hours removing as much paint as we can. There's going to be some chips. There's going to be some things. And guess what? In a year or two, you're probably going to see another chip somewhere because we're not perfect. But those are your options. That's the thing we can give you, the reasonable restoration where nobody's going to do it better than us now, but you're going to have to go on a maintenance cycle. Every five years, there's something on the house that's going to be uh, having to need to be maintained. Or if you want that 10 to 20 year option, we can do that. But again, that's three teams of craftspeople working for three or four months on your house. And it's kind of up to you to find out where the value is. So long way around of saying anything can be painted, but you got to have the right expectations. Yeah. And that is a really good point. I think a lot of us coming into this sometimes think that the expectation is that we'll pay for it and we'll never have to pay for it again. And that's so untrue. You know, I've lived actually in this house now for eight years and there are things that we're circling back to for maintenance and some of that is exterior painting. You know, I, it's not fair to believe that you will just never have to repeat any work ever again. Well, and, and we, we run into this all the time, which is, you know, again, I get that proverbial question. Well, Nick, how long is that paint job going to last? So I can give three answers, which is over or under seven years. That's what the data will tell us. But that seven years is very different. The north side of a house in the upper Midwest is shaded almost the entire day. That could go 20 years. The south side, if there's no overhangs and that water is hitting those huge historic sills that extend out, you may need it every year. So we're looking at some items that need to be touched up in year one. We look at something that might last two decades. The over under, seven years, give or take. Yeah, my house hadn't been painted fully in 40 years. And then it oh. hadn't been touched up probably in 15. We had quite a project on our hands here and I did not do it. I paid somebody. I did not do that oh, job. Man. So we did. Um, I took the entire company. There was a whole bunch of young apprentices who had never really restored a Victorian mansion before. And uh, we got a contract for the monster. We call it the big green monster because it's a house <laughs> that everybody knows in the area. It's a crazy 1880 stick Victorian, all sea mist green, the entire thing. And we probably spent, you know, about 1100 hours uh, restoring this thing. And it hadn't been painted since as far as we could tell the 1970s. So we could be looking down the barrel of 50 years and we took off a dump truck full of paint chips and we had to all abide by the RRP lead law, keeping everybody safe. But we literally made this house about 1100 pounds lighter at the end of this process. So it was, but that's crazy because again, setting proper expectations for this client is 
we're chipping off pieces of paint that are as thick as a nickel. So when people say, well, how, you know, how much paint is too much paint? I've had great success. If the paint is well adhered and the wood is good, there can be a quarter inch of paint. As long as it's not peeling off and, and there's adhesion problems, you're good to go. Wow. 1,100 pounds. Nobody could see my face, but it's it's my shocked face, the one where my chin is hanging way down. <laughs> and imagine, you know, because we obviously we don't pressure wash them and we limit our mechanical means. So really that's a carbide scraper in the hand of a young, excited person. Uh, every bit of that came off and collected. So, yeah. Wow. That, I feel like we should just have a moment to let that all sink in for everyone. <laughs> 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 all right. Next question. That was your moment, everyone. Next question. <laughs> How do you get a really good paint bond on very weathered wood surfaces? I assume we're talking about exterior. I think so too. Yeah. So, um, when we're talking about historic homes, uh, legally we cannot pressure wash those things. So it's, it's all about following, uh, I'm a lead, uh, a lead, uh, a certified lead renovator. So we have to abide by all sorts of craziness, uh, to keep everybody safe. So basically it's, it's removal by hand. So you obviously want to remove any failing paint. If you can sand safely with HEPAVAX, you sand safely with HEPAVAX to ease all the edges with the goal of being to remove any dead wood fibers and dead wood fibers are any of those gray or black wood fibers. You want to get it down to nice, bright wood. And then, uh, again, if paint is intact, you don't have to do anything special to it. Uh, but if you see bare wood, you do need to use a penetrating primer, something that'll grab onto it. And a lot of the times in our historic restorations, we don't actually do full priming jobs. We do spot priming jobs where everything that's bare wood gets spot prime and you don't need to prime over uh, previous paint at all. Interesting. So we're going to talk about your favorites here in the next section. People always want to know what's the best, what's your favorite. So what do you have a favorite exterior primer? Yes. So this goes against everything I know to be true about coating science. So uh, oil, you, you basically have two choices with oil primers or excuse me, with, with primers, you have solvent-based primers and water-based primers. And there's a whole bunch of middle ground and hybrids and weird stuff. Oil-based primers are known for stinking a lot, uh, being hard to apply, but sticking to nearly everything and stopping all the stains. Water-based primers are kind of like very specific race cars, which is you can get one that sticks, you can get one that stops bleeding, you can get one that doesn't smell, you can get one that maybe sands well, but there's not, as far as I know, any primer that does all of those, a water-based primer that does all of those perfectly. So when you're talking about exterior wood, all the coating science, everything I know to be true would mean if you have bare wood, you need to use oil primer outside because you want it to stop the stains, the tannins from the woods bleeding through. The problem is over the last five years, we have converted our exterior uh, historic restoration and standard home painting processes to all water-based primer. And we've never had a bleed or an adhesion issue. That goes against everything I know to be true about coating science, but you can't argue with the data set of having no failure. How did you decide to make the switch? I mean, what made you say, let's just try it? I, I will tell you what, uh, based out of necessity, again, and keeping things simple, which is I had what we referred to as the summer of barns. I had about five historic barn rice restorations to do in one year. And if you know anything about barn restoration, these things are left to their own devices. And their wood is like driftwood. It's got quarter inch thick crags inside the wood. So this is not like Victorian wood clabberds where you can do a little sanding and scraping. Like this is basically like wood out of the forest floor that happens to be on a building that you need to fill and consolidate. And we used to brush all these by hand with oil primer. And that is basically horse glue. But 
We worked it in. It, it did really well. These things last for 10 or 20 years because we were able to do that. And I thought, my gosh, my wrists are killing me. My shoulders are killing me. We got to increase production here, but still give a good thing. So I took one barn and I did a test of four different primers. And we found out that three of them, I think, uh, did not bleed and they all adhered well. So we went with the one that I felt was actually the thinnest, which penetrated the farthest, which felt like it almost went into the wood an eighth of an inch. And we had such good results on that. Production for priming that barn doubled. We were able to prime that barn in half the time because the uh, efficiency of that primer, it just flowed on easier. And we have never stopped using it since uh, with no failures. So mm -hmm. testing things as a master craftsperson to me is very important, especially when you can give them a good result, but with less time as well. Right. And to be clear, you were putting that on bare wood. Is that correct? Bare wood. Absolutely. Yep. Well, a little different question, but what do you think is the best exterior paintable caulk for porch, like woodwork on a porch or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, so unsatisfying master craftsperson answer is don't use caulk because that's going to be the first thing that fails. But if you have to, if there's, if you get a super, super high end exterior acrylic paint, anything that you're going to pay somewhere between 70 and $90 a gallon for, you can bridge the gap of three sixteenth of an inch with the paint. And that is way more stable than caulking. But if you have to use it, and we have in the past too, I would look for something between about seven and $12 uh, a tube. It must be paintable. Uh, I prefer like a urethane based. It seems to be a little tougher. Uh, the only thing I would not do is go for the, you know, dollar 25, just simple chalky painter's caulk sort of thing. Those are the first thing where a year or two later outside, that'll zip right off the wood. It'll come off and, and fail. But the key to a good caulking job is not just the caulking itself. You must put it over a fully primed and prepped surface in order for it to adhere. You, If you put it over bare wood, you can walk right up to that proverbial corner board on a house with all the clabbers coming into the side. And you can zip that caulking out just like a zipper if they put it over bare wood. So honestly, I would take a lesser caulk, but over a very well prepped surface. I've also used window glazing putty, actually, when I have like a big wide gap. Oh my God. Yeah. I love that. Do you use that too? Oh, and so we, we restore windows. And uh, one of the things that I still think is that, you know, 30 years ago when my dad used to make me reglaze windows, I thought, oh, this is so tedious. It's boring. The stuff is all sticky and it's soft. Now I almost think of it as like some throwback thing. Like, hey, you know, I can put a horseshoe on a horse. I can glaze a window. It's like <laughs> some weird old timey skill now. And I, I actually think it's very satisfying. So yeah, we're, we're huge fans of the traditional glazing process. Right. And that you can use on bare wood too. So it's, although it will, if there's any oil in the wood, it'll still suck it out. So a lot of times it's good to put a little bit of something in it, linseed oil or whatever on the wood. And then I, I don't know, would you agree? I'm, I'm telling you what I would do. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and so, yes, that's a, that's a thing that, um, so honestly to me in my experiments, cause I restored all the windows in my historic home before we sold it. And it was one of those things where it almost didn't matter what you did to restore the windows. If you can limit the water exposure to it, you could use very inferior processes and products and get a great result. It was all limiting dew, frost, rain, everything else on it. And I found that the, to be the key to success, actually. So, All right. Next question. What is the best, more best questions, right? We're moving to a different section here, but what is the best primer for over shiny oil paint? And then this person says, I intend to use water-based paint and I cannot sand to prep. So I would guess this is interior. Maybe they, uh, they're thinking about lead, you know, they can't sand because of lead. So they're looking for a primer to put over oil paint. 
Yeah, this is perfect. And again, uh, along uh, the line of unsatisfying answers, which is a scratch test, we'll tell you that. Uh, but I would start with if you're, uh, so we always want to use water-based primers and we will usually start using water-based primers to see if we can uh, get a good effect with it, but we still use a ton of oil primer. I mean, it is the tried and true thing. So what I would do, I would propose if that were my job, I would propose a dual scratch test, which uh, I would go find uh, a very highly reputable paint manufacturer and see if they have a water-based bonding primer, a primer specifically made to bond. And a lot of these primers nowadays can stick to glass and tile and plastic and PVC. It's amazing what these primers can do. They likely will not block a stain. Uh, they likely will not sand very well, but they will stick. So I would do a dual test of put some water-based bonding primer on a small section and put some oil-based primer on a section. And then again, wait overnight and see what scratches off the next day. Mm -hmm. And you're scratching it with your fingernail or I saw on one of your videos where you make little cuts in it and then put tape yep. on it and see if it peels off either or. Honestly, the fingernail scratch test is best. Uh, the, the test you're describing is the crosshatch test, which is, um, it's interesting. So I'm a big fan of data and we keep large data sets in my company. And I used to do fingernail scratch test and crosshatch test for every job. And the fingernail test told you everything you need to know. There was never a time where uh, coding passed one and failed another. They either failed both or path both. So I thought, well, instead of cutting up this thing and possibly putting a check mark with a razor blade over it and all that stuff, we're just going to do the fingernail test. And honestly, it has not failed us once in a decade. All right, we're going to move to one process question. I actually had three in this section, but I think based on what you've been saying overall, I feel like someone could extract the answers that they're looking for to those questions. But a question I haven't asked you yet is what process do you use to safely remove chipped lead paint to patch and repaint the surface? Yeah. So for a couple hundred bucks, you can take the course and learn all the fantastic techniques yourself. But basically uh, what it is, is uh, I like the theory level of stuff. And you can talk about the specific tactics, which you could at length, because it's a day long training. I actually have two people in it today, but the theory is keep the homeowner safe on the inside, keep the neighbors and your people safe on the outside. So basically you're talking about um, two main things, which is protecting the site and protecting your people. Protecting your people is number one, um, you know, full PPE, personal protective equipment, respirators, eye protection, fully hooded Tyvek suits. You got to have gloves. There's got to be a cordoned off area where people can't eat or smoke or drink in. It's got to be outside of that. You got to leave uh, certain PPE inside, not take it outside. You have to mask off the window so nothing migrates inside. Sometimes you actually have to go on the inside and mask off the inside as a dual layer protection, depending on the nature of the historic windows. So you almost have uh, like a storm window effect where nothing's going to pass. The biggest part is safely removing. Obviously there's tons of plastic and containment on the ground too. It's teaching your people how to work efficiently and safely and not letting this stuff migrate outside of this controlled little area. And honestly, for a professional, that's only 50% of it. The other 50% is a rigorous, rigorous, rigorous bookkeeping uh, sort of part of this that professionals have to do too. So it's not just the safe removal and the disposal of lead. Uh, and paint, but it's basically, it, it's, it's very robust on our end. It's uh, lots of consequences if we do it improperly. So. Right. And I would assume the person that asked that was a do it yourselfer. but yeah, it's different for you. You're, this is what you do all day. Absolutely. And, and, you know, so I, I think about, you know, I'm not a big fan of the letter of the law. I'm a big fan of sort of the intent of the law, which is you want to keep people safe. So if you just follow the law, you're probably not doing everything you can to keep your people or the homeowner or the neighbor safe. So we go above and beyond that stuff. And all you got to do is do common sense stuff, which is don't pressure wash your house, 
scrape it and sand it in a safe way where you have HEPA vax, you contain all the chips, you clean up, and you're not leaving that stuff on and in your body or on and in the yard there. And there actually is a interesting clause. If you get reading the whole law, you can actually disturb a pretty small section, a two by two or a three by three without having to go through all the crazy sort of stuff. But I would still say, I don't care if I'm touching an inch or an entire Victorian mansion, you know, respirator, personal protective gear, and a clean working space is number one. Yeah. Why take a risk, right? And it's one of those things where, um, even if we keep the homeowner and our people and the neighbors hundred percent safe, if somebody walking by sees our skull and crossbone lead hazmat area, they can call the EPA and have us audited, even if we follow all the correct things. So this is something that we take very seriously. Uh, it, it, it depends. You really have to do things above and beyond the law in order to make sure you give the impression of being safe, but also end up actually keeping people safe at the end. So. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So on to our general questions section. Someone asked, prior painters were messy with drips. How do I fix that on decorative plaster walls? And I'm thinking maybe it's cornice. I feel like I've I've offered like additional information for all of these. Like I should have clarified them in advance. So I'm, I'm a, you can tell me if I'm envisioning this wrong. I'm envisioning beautiful woodwork with drips, specks, over, overspray, things like that on beautiful trim. Yes. Am I, am I- Tracking. Okay, good. Yeah. So, and it could uh, be, let me, let me interject real quick. It could be, I'm seeing that they said decorative plaster. So I'm thinking plaster cornice versus, but it could be lovely Oak as well. We could, we could talk about both. The, the same process for me, removing previous paint is insanely straightforward, but laborious on newer houses. So think about the uh, typical, like, you know, golden Oak, uh, house built in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, they finished all that woodwork with lacquer. So we actually use uh, denatured alcohol to remove water-based paint. Denatured alcohol will loosen up water-based paint, but will not har- harm lacquer. Now, the problem is with historic homes, a lot of these houses were finished with a shellac-based finish and denatured alcohol will absolutely put into solution shellac. So now the, that the master craftsperson's perfect weapon, this denatured alcohol that will loosen water-based paint may actually strip your woodwork. And the historic door that I have right in my office here I just used denatured alcohol with a tiny bit of acetone and it instantly took up all that stuff. So now you have to be careful. So now you're, you're into the realm of what I've done in the past. And depending on how brittle the shellac is, I've mechanically removed it with dental tools and a series of razors where you shave, 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 and slowly take the drips off. But I would always rather take a Q-tip out. I would try denatured alcohol first. If you're on the decorative plaster cornice, you're probably hundred percent okay to do that. If you're on any type of wood that's at least 80 years old, that's got a clear finish on it, I would always find a place behind a door or something to test that out because the likelihood of that being a a shellac-based something and uh, being ruined by alcohol is very high. So, All right. Next, where can I find historic paint color swatches references? And again, another little clarification. I assume they want to know not just the historical card from like one of the big makers of paint, the main, major manufacturers of paint. I'm assuming they want to go to look at what somebody in the 1800s was looking at to determine a paint color. All right. So I'm a huge fan of original documents. And one of the best things that I've ever found are mail order house catalogs. And I'm holding one uh, from the 19 teens now. And if you want to see what people actually colored their houses with, it's that to me is like source documents. So uh, I can go to a lot of the historic restorations I did, and we can do an excavation of the paint and find some stuff. But 
that's such a small data set. You don't know. I mean, look at what people paint their houses now. I would not base an entire historical reference on, uh, you know, even 50 houses in my area because people have wild ideas about color. So I actually go to original source documents uh, in home magazines from that time to find out what people were doing. And, you know, it's, it's never really like people think that they're going to find this old farmhouse and they're going to be like, oh, I bet you it was just like, you know, 14 colors, gold leaf and this and that. Like, <laughs> listen, in my area, the upper Midwest, every house was white. And sometimes it had a green window sash and sometimes it had a blue window sash. Well, that's about it. It's surprisingly boring on the outside of houses, how little color you find. Like the Victorian mansions that we restore, they've either been white their entire life or like that big green monster we did. It's just been green its entire life. There's never been a trim color. There's never been a gold leaf. There's never been a purple, a red, you know? So um, yeah, surprise. the insides, when I excavated my, my other old house, I found a huge array of, you know, the olives, the ochres, the clays, the things like that. But I go to original source documents and sometimes not even these books where it's like a retrospective of Victorian homes and things. Cause sometimes they, they point out all the rich people's homes. What I'm interested in is that entry level home. Like what did the common person paint? And cause that's really what you're going to run into most of the time. Right. Where would you find those books? Uh, eBay or something Absolutely. like that? So, you know, back when I, when I got my collection, I got about six bookshelves in here, just full of that sort of stuff. And I had to slug it out with the rest of the people at, uh, you know, flea markets and garage sales and things like that. But nowadays, my gosh, Amazon, eBay, you know, a Craigslist, all this stuff, you can find anything you want nowadays. So, yeah. Right. Okay. I'm going to ask you two more questions. I think I'm going to have to call the herd here a little bit because otherwise we'll be here till tomorrow. I love right. <laughs> all of your answers. And like I oh, said, I could you. talk to you for days and days, but you know, we do have a limit here. So <laughs> Let's go to paint real quick. I actually, you know what? I want to change my mind. I'm not going to ask you that question. I'm going to ask you this. Do you have tips for painting old windows without removing them? Yes. First tip would be you need to clean up all the tracks, all the pulleys, all the edges, everything you can. I've done tons of, I mean, most of our clients do not want us to fully remove all the window sashes to restore them. Most of the time we're doing reasonable restoration in place. And the first thing we do, because we're going to be adding very thick, robust uh, acrylic coatings to it, we need to actually take some stuff off to make sure that we don't seal these windows in place. So we're looking at all the jams, all the runners, all the guides, uh, all the edges where the two sashes overlap on a double hung. And we actually want to remove as much stuff from there as we can so that when we prime and paint it, we're bringing it back up to zero instead of creating a situation where they're all stuck together. So number one, that would be it. Um, number two, we actually do tons of, you know, back to the reasonable restoration thing. We don't necessarily rip out all the glazing on windows. Uh, it's really uh, when we do a, uh, a restoration, typically we look at the four inches on the side of the lower sash and the entire uh, bead of um, glazing on the lower sash. The rest of it is actually usually intact. We chip off what's wrong. We piece in with new stuff. We prime and paint the things. And uh, obviously at the end of the project, we cycle the windows up and down a whole bunch like that too, to kind of make sure that they're, you know, working properly and things like that. But yeah, just a lot of tedious hard work, I guess. Yeah. That is one thing that we can't count on from all of our painters. I can count on that from you, but the fact that they will make sure that your window will open again after painting it. <laughs> well, and one of the things we have to counsel our people on is like, listen, you know, even, even our acrylic paints that dry to the touch in 10 to 20 minutes, there's a cure time after that. And it's very likely that when we leave, we are physically, you know, physically going to make sure that every one of your windows works. But if you don't touch them for another 30 days, there's going to be some ones that stick. So we either often to come back, offer to come back out and do that, or we tell them, 
once a week might be good for you to just cycle your windows up and down just to make sure nothing's curing together. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I've been there, done that, actually. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The last question is, do you incorporate a carpenter into your work? And what's, what happens when you find rotten wood? Ah, yes. Uh, it's so important to us. We actually have an on-staff carpenter. Uh, we have a person who's under our employee, who's a restoration carpenter, who does only that because we want to control it. Um, if you just call a house remodeling firm, a home building firm, something like that, the likelihood of them having interest and knowledge about old homes is very low. And I, we've all seen the, the horrible shoddy work done with pine boards from Menards or, or a home center put onto an old house in a very bad way, sealed up with, you know, a construction adhesive. And you just have to have somebody who cares, is interested and is knowledgeable. And it's so important to us. We actually hired our own so we can control the process. Typically what we find is I counsel my clients that I can likely find about 70% of the rot or the things that need to be addressed with carpentry on the initial walk around. But obviously, once we go through the RRP lead process, get all the paint off the house, prep it, we're going to probably find 30% more. So again, back to the setting proper expectations, whether you're a DIY or a homeowner or a professional, if you see that one board up on your dormer next to the shingles that's rotten, congratulations, that's on every house. Expect to find a little more once you dig into your house. If you if you are up close and personal and touching every board, scraping stuff off, cleaning it, priming it, you're gonna find thirty percent more than what you uh, than what you initially saw. So just prepare your mind for it. And uh, if you're hiring somebody to do it, if they don't bring that conversation up, I would be very leery because change orders are a coming, as they say, and that's what uh, bad contractors do. Uh, it doesn't gain the trust of the clients. Right. Okay. Well, this has been great. Sort of like. A race. I feel like I was like, hey, let's go. Let's answer all these questions. And you're you're talking fast, and I love it. Uh, it's wonderful that our time has gone by so fast. And before we say goodbye, could you please tell everyone where they can find you on social media, that where they can watch Ask a Painter Live, or even hire you for a restoration job? Yeah. So obviously, if if people have questions, uh, the flagship is my website www.nickslavic.com. That's a whole bunch of stuff, my my company and everything else. But if you look on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and all the other places, the YouTube's and whatnot, if you just search for Nick Slavic or Ask a Painter, you're going to find yeah, you're going to find what you need. Okay, great. And I actually am going to put all your links for social media for nickslavic.com, all of that on the show notes. So um, your last name spelled S-L-A-V-I-K if anybody doesn't want to go to the show notes and look that all up, but that'll give you something to go on. But thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. This was wonderful. This is my favorite thing to do. And uh, you're great at this. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to True Tales from Old Houses. And thank you to my guests, Nick Slavic and Alex Santantonio. If you have a moment, we would love it if you would leave a positive rating or review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Ratings and reviews make the podcast world go round. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow True Tales from Old Houses and Blake Hill House on Facebook and Instagram. For bonus content and special offerings, please consider becoming a subscriber on our brand new Patreon. And if you're looking for more information about this episode, including photos, show notes, coupon codes, and to request a transcript, visit truetalesfromoldhouses.com. Till next time. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit pcapainted.org.